following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Let's back up just a little bit and review, because this whole passage of chapters 14 and 15 need to go together. And let me just uh, uh, give you the three main points that Paul has made in this section, okay? Real quick. First point, uh, we must, he says, we must deal with people where they are. He says, people get divided up into groups because of certain, we call doctrinal distinctions, distinctives, right? <laughs> means what makes us not like them, what makes them not like us, right? He says, we need to meet people where they are. And he says, a lot of these doctrinal distinctions are the pro- product of uh, immature faith. He says that they are weak in faith. They don't fully understand uh, God's purpose, God's plan in the gospel. And they misunderstand it. So there's these differences of opinion about truth, about doctrine, about how we're supposed to practice and do things. And Paul says we need to, those who are stronger need to look out for the weaker. We need to meet them where they are. So for example, if you're a kindergarten teacher, you have to meet them where they are. Right? You don't hand out a 1,000-page textbook and say, okay, you little five-year-olds, I'm going to whip you into shape. I want you to read this book by tomorrow. Right? They're looking at you like, what's a book? <laughs> it doesn't have pictures. Right? How do I read it without pictures? I was still saying that as a senior, actually. So, um, you meet them where they are. You go down to their level. So Paul says, spiritually, that's what we need to do. We need to meet people where they are. If they're immature in their faith, we don't beat them up because of it. We meet them where they are. Second principle, uh, he says that those who are stronger will experience a greater freedom to do things that the weaker brothers will not feel they have permission to do. You have a certain liberty, a certain freedom in Christ that they might view as being sinful. So he said, you've got to be very careful, number two, that you are sensitive and that you don't use your freedom in a way that causes them to sin. Not because it's sin universally, but because for them, it's a conviction of their heart, and if they violate those convictions, for them it would be a sin. So we have to be very careful that we don't uh, flaunt or exercise or use our freedom in a way that would cause others to sin. And you know, we could spend actually probably three weeks talking about how this would play out in 10,000 different situations and circumstances. We just don't have time for that. You just need to trust the Holy Spirit to guide you, right? Rather than me take you through all that. But let me just say this. In this context, what it means is uh, that the weak in faith doesn't mean somebody who's struggling with sin, right? He's not talking about here who, who a person who is struggling with a sin, say, of immorality or some other sin, that uh, by our doing something would cause them to fall into some sin that they're already, you know, a universal sin that they're all dealing with. So for a good example, this would be alcohol, okay? Uh, a, a stronger brother would probably feel a liberty to drink wine or some other drink that a weaker brother may not. Uh, what this doesn't mean is this, though. It doesn't mean that my weaker brother is the guy who's an alcoholic, you know, and he's struggling with alcoholism. And if I drink, it might cause him to uh, go off you know, his sobriety and, and start being a drunk again. 
That's not the context of this passage. Now, that might be true. You might want to, in care and deference to a brother who struggles with alcoholism, not drink around them, right? What he's talking about here, though, is a person who, drinking at all, would violate their conscience, right? One drop of it would violate their conscience. And for us to to drink at all would uh, imperil them or encourage them to do something that would violate their, their deep conviction that they don't have a freedom for. So we would need to be careful and use restraint so that we don't cause them to sin in that sense. Right? So a better example would be not an alcoholic, but, but for example, uh, for many Thai believers, they just believe it's flat out wrong. Right? And, and uh, whether it's good, right, whatever, it's, it's an issue we have to be sensitive about with them. Right? And we don't want to cause them to sin by encouraging them to do something that at any level uh, they would see as uh, going against their convictions. Uh, then we come to chapter 15, and uh, he finishes with the main point of it all. Hello. The, uh, the importance of unity in the body, right? That we have to stay uh, unified as the body of Christ. Not at any cost, not at all cost, uh, not at the expense of some doctrines. And so Paul would break it down this way. He would say, this does not apply to every area of theology. And he with those core essential doctrines, there's a lot of non-essentials. Now, of course, the way this works, everybody thinks their doctrines are essential and your bad doctrines are non-essential, right? Well, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about things related to the, the, the core of the gospel, what it means for us to be in right relationship with Christ, right? Those are core things. The deity of Christ, his atoning death, uh, his resurrection, those are core things. Pretty much everything else would be, uh, by Paul, considered non-essential. Um, so, so we have to make those distinctions. We have to set our very small list of things that, that we would die for. And it should be things that we would die for, right? And I know some people would die for some pretty silly things, right? But make sure you're dying for things that are actually worth it, essential things. And uh, the non-essentials... We should certainly develop our own convictions, our own ideas, our own theology. But we shouldn't uh, make those the basis of disagreement or fighting with other believers. Paul says, in fact, there should be unity. So how does he teach about that in this passage? Well, let's look at a couple key points. Uh, First of all, he starts off by saying, uh, we who are strong... Literally, we who are able, the word dunamis, the word we get dynamite from, right? We who are able have an obligation to bear with or to carry the failings or the weaknesses of the unable, the, the, the adunamis, those who do not have power. Uh, a way, a way to, one way to translate that word would be to translate it disabled. Okay, The able should carry the disabled. And I like that picture because it's a, a picture that kind of clicks with me. If somebody is disabled, they uh, can't walk or they you know, can't move, they don't have uh, good speech ability, they need strong people to carry them along. Right? I, saw, I saw a deal this week, uh, I don't know where, Facebook or something, where kind of as a joke, somebody made a seeing-eye texting person. So it's like instead of a seeing-eye dog, they had a guy in an orange vest with a leash leading a guy who was walking and texting simultaneously, right? Because right? you can't do that. You run into things, right? Um, the idea there, you know, you're, you're challenged 
You need a strong person to carry you. And, and Paul says, those of you who are mature in your faith, who are strong in faith, you have a duty and obligation to help carry along those who are immature and weak in their faith. Right? Don't run them over. Help them out. Well, how do we do that? Uh, and this is hard for us because oftentimes this looks or this might feel like we are catering to their immaturity. Right? But Paul essentially says exactly that's what we should do. Uh, and he frames it in these terms. He says we should live to please them, right? Uh, carry the uh, failings of the weak and, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, that is, so that he could be built up. Well, what does it mean to please somebody else? Now, Paul's not talking here about being a people pleaser. A people pleaser is a person who lives to get approval from others, Right? Trust me, if you're dealing with weaker, immature people, even if you please them, they're probably not going to approve you, right? They're not the people you want to get strokes from, usually. Uh, They may be pacified. They're probably not going to praise you. And that's not what Paul's talking about here, where we're doing things in order to get the approval of man. What he's talking about here, the the word please could be translated this way. Uh, one, One commentator says it means to accommodate oneself to the opinions and uh, desires and interests of others. Okay, to accommodate yourself to the opinions, interests, and desires of others. Uh, what, what does that mean? Well, in, in plain paraphrased English, it means this. It means let them be right. It means let them be right. Okay? Uh, and again, this is not in essential areas. Okay, there are essential doctrines that uh, if they're wrong, you've you got to confront that. In the non-essentials, Paul says let them be right. Please them. Accommodate their wacky, immature ideas and opinions. Okay. By the way, this is a great tip for marriage, right? If you're the stronger person in marriage, means you're right. And your spouse, of course, is the weaker one because they're wrong. And they say something that is just totally off the wall, right? They say something that you just think, well, where did they get that from, right? I was there. That's not how it happened. Anybody ever had that experience? Right? Right? And, you know, the temptation is to do what? To be the voice of truth. i gotta, I got to straighten out. You, you know, you're wrong. That's not how it happened, right? That always goes so well, doesn't it? Right? I mean, I am the stronger one, and I'm always right. And so when I tell my weaker spouse that she's wrong, it just builds harmony. It just, it just endears her to me, and it just facilitates all kinds of great communication. Meaning... A fight, right? A rather lengthy dispute. <clears throat> right? You want to kill conversation. You want to kill <clears throat> healthy, positive conversation. Just say, oh, you're wrong. That's not how it happened, right? Uh, instead, Paul says, the stronger should say to the weaker, you're right. You're right, right? Uh, now, you don't have to lie about it, but y- you, you accommodate them, Right? You don't challenge what you feel is their error. You let it go. You let it ride, right? And that's exactly what he says here. He says, let each of us please, let each of us accommodate his neighbor. Why? For his good to build him up, right? Um, And you might think, well, if I do that all the time, and my, my spouse always thinks they're right, this is bad news because they're not, right? And I can't let this go. 
right? That other group, those other people, they're immature in, our, in their faith, and if I don't correct them, how are they ever going to get the right understanding? Or how am I going to fix them so that they're s- smart and strong like me? Well, Paul says that, he says, we do that in order to bring to them good, in order to build them up in Christ. Well, how does that work? Well, we need to let them uh, believe they're right on the non-essentials so that we can refocus them on the essentials. Right? Jesus was brilliant at this. When you read through the Gospels over and over again, people came to Jesus and they asked him a question. Right? And almost never, Jesus answers the question they ask. Do you ever notice that? He's always like going off answering some other question. Well, what's Jesus doing? He's going, yeah, okay, on that you're an idiot. You know? But we're not going to go there because it's not important, right? I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to debate with you about non-essentials. I'm going to redirect you to what? To the gospel. I'm going to do everything I can to realign, to, to show you how you're misunderstanding what God's kingdom in, in terms of the cross and in terms of redemption is really all about, right? So Jesus did that brilliantly. And, and we need to learn how to do the same thing. Let go of those things that are not that important. And instead, to build them up, to, to do the good in their life, we need to help them become more grounded in their understanding of the essentials. Because the truth is, Paul says they're weak in faith. He doesn't mean they're just weak in the, in the non-essentials. He really means they are weak in the essentials. Okay, not the weak in the sense that they are unsaved, but weak in the sense that they don't get the full picture. We talked about that last week. So we need to refocus them on the important things so that they will grow, so that they will be built up. And the truth is, as the essential things become solid and firm when their life is built on the foundation of those things, guess what happens? Well, piece by piece, some of those non-essentials begin to change. They begin to read Scripture and they begin to get new light and insight because they're seeing it through the sharper lens of the truth of the gospel. And all of a sudden, other things either are not that important or they change. I remember when I was first pastoring back in Colorado, this little very country church uh, had been started. Everybody there were all um, came into the church as as non-Christians. So they didn't plant or start this church with with any core group of Christians. It was started completely with unbelievers. And, and most of them were, were over 60. So I go in as this 30-year-old, young enough to be most of their grandson, much less son, you know. And um, old school, okay, very old school. And every Sunday we sang hymns, old hymns, right? Very old hymns. And, uh, of course, I, I like hymns. But there's a lot of other great music out there, and I really wanted to move them into. But I was smart enough to know you don't just you know you don't unload this on them. You you go step by step. So I made the the almost fatal error of one Sunday morning singing a praise chorus. Well, you know, one of the older ladies in the church who had been a Christian for all of about six months, uh, you know, cornered me and just read me out one side and down the other of how how horrible it was that we sang this you know, this ungodly contemporary worship music. You know, but she let me have it, both barrels. And all true God-ordained music had to come out of a hymn book. And if it didn't come out of a hymn book, you know, it was heresy. 
Well, I, you know, everything in me wants to just blast this foolishness, right? And I'm thinking of all the Psalms and this scripture and that passage and this verse that I could just teach her. But God in his great power over, overrode all that and said to me, just keep your mouth shut, you know, just keep your mouth shut. And I just smiled and said, I'll, I'll take that in mind. Thank, thanks for that, for that wisdom, <laughs> right? I let her be right. Right? At that moment in time, I let her be right. I understood she's a very young, immature believer who does not know. It would be foolish for me to make a, a battleground out of this. So for three more years, guess what we sang every Sunday? The same 12 hymns over and over, right? But it gave me the opportunity to teach the gospel, to build up her faith, right? Three years later, round two, I start slowly introducing praise choruses, no problem, right? Nobody has a problem because I built them up in their faith so that they're at a different place spiritually, right? That's what Paul's talking about here. We do it for their good, not because we cave into them so that they'll never grow, but so that we can help them grow and be built up in their faith. Um, <clears throat> Paul goes on to say that we do this, uh, but, but the precedence for it, the example of it, is Christ himself. In verse 3 says this, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And in verse 8 he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Amazing. Uh, And in in, in verse 3, Paul uses the word Christ. He doesn't use the word Jesus. He, He uses Jesus' messianic title, right? His king title. That's what Christ is. It means Christ the king, the Messiah. Right? He says, the Messiah did not please himself. Amazing, right? Amazing. When Jesus came to earth, he came as king of kings, as the, the, the promised one, the heir of, of King David, who would restore the, uh, the kingdom to Israel. But he says, Jesus did not come to please himself. He came likewise to please us, to accommodate us. And then Paul quotes an Old Testament passage where he says that the, the reproaches uh, of those who reproached you, that would be God, fell on me, that would be Christ. Right? So in other words, Jesus stepped into a place where he, uh, in order to please the Father, to please and serve us, took a, upon the reproaches, the, the blasphemies, the criticisms, the condemnation that people were hurling at God. Okay, people were uh, rebelling against God. They were telling God he was no good. They were saying all kinds of bad things about God. And God, instead of wiping them out as he could have done and as he did sometimes in the Old Testament, he sent Jesus. And Jesus took those reproaches. He right? took them on himself. He took our insults towards God, and he absorbed them himself. Not only the insults, but the consequences of those insults. Right? He served us. He accommodated us. He lived to please and serve us. And Margaret says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right? uh, in verse 8, a little different context. We'll get there in a minute. But he says, uh, um, I tell you that Christ became the servant to the un- to the circumcised. Right? The word there is the word we get the word deacon from. It means a table waiter, a minister, a, a table servant. Right? So Jesus is an example of this. 
Jesus does not say, you're wrong, and therefore I have the right to bowl you over. Jesus meets us where we are. He serves us. And through the cross, he uh, tenderly and gently cares for us. It's interesting, the word that's used for servant uh, is uh, that, that, that Jesus became a servant. He came to serve. Is actually, um, the verb tense that's used there has the idea of uh, he did it when he came, but he's still in that role even today. Yeah, amazing, right? Jesus came and he served, but when he, when he rose from the, the grave and he shed his grave clothes, he didn't say, okay, I'm done serving now. Now I'm king. You know, pay up, right? No. The, the way it's worded here is the idea that he continues, even in heaven, to serve us, right? Through mediating the power of the cross to us continually. It's forgiveness and it's grace to us continually. So Paul's point clearly is that if, if Jesus would do this, uh, he is a supreme example of how we ought to do this towards each other. He clearly is the stronger one. We were the weaker at, at an infinite degree of separation. And yet he comes and he serves us. Uh, we are a little bit stronger on some days. <laughs> Maybe some days we're the little bit weaker, right? Uh, can we not serve each other? By living to please others, by accommodating the quirkiness of those who are in some areas less mature than us, right? Uh, thirdly, he gives in this section, the first section, he gives uh, the motivation for all this. And he says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. That's kind of interesting that he throws in this idea of hope in the midst of all this serving and helping build up our our brother. Um, why? Why does he talk about hope? And why does he talk here about in, endurance and encouragement? Well, the truth is, uh, here's the truth. Okay, because none of you are weaker. You're all stronger, right? Everybody here is stronger. So we can talk about the weaker. Okay, the truth is, the weaker brothers are high maintenance, Right? They are high maintenance. By definition, that's what it means to be weaker. Immaturity means high maintenance, right? And if you have had to deal with high maintenance people, immature, weaker people, is it easy? No, right? It's exhausting, right? Because their needs and their demands and their quirkiness kind of can wear you out. Paul says, we need the endurance and encouragement of what? He says, of Scripture to give us hope to keep plugging away, right? Carrying weak people is not easy. Uh, it's demanding, and it taxes us. And there are times when we feel like, ah, okay, I'm tired of weak people. I want to be the weak person. I want somebody to carry me, right? And Paul says that's what Scripture is given for. Uh, we are to be uh, daily going to the Word, and I love it. He describes Scripture in this context as, is this the source of endurance and encouragement so that we might have hope according to Christ, right? Uh, we've got to be daily feeding ourselves because the truth is maturity is not a state of being that lasts forever, okay? Maturity is a state you come to when this morning you started off right and today you're doing things right. Guess what? Tomorrow you can go down the total path of immaturity, 
right? Because it's not just about what you know. It's about what you are living and practicing. It's how you are exercising faith. So every day, for mature people, it means they, they do what? They go to Scripture. They are encouraged and strengthened by God's Word. They are reminded of these principles of the core, essential doctrines of the faith, and they they build their life on that solid foundation, constantly going back to that that foundation, that solid rock of Christ, right? And feeding and encouraging yourself so that you have hope. Hope is, is simply faith that is future-focused. Okay, hope is faith that is future-focused. It's not just believing what God's going to do in my life today. It's having faith in what God will ultimately do at the last day, at the end, at the finish. And keeping that focus in mind. And the reality is that that gives us the strength to endure. Right? When we have a clear focus that God is working in my life, and not only that, but he's actually working in the life of my weak brother. And, and through my obedience, they're not going to be weak forever. God is going to bring them along to a place of greater maturity, greater faith, greater strength, and I won't have to carry them forever. One day they will be able to carry others because they've been strengthened. That's hope. Okay? That's the hope we have. And someday God brings all of us who are all weak at some level, all in need of being carried along, all tired and weary at some point, and God will strengthen us with the ultimate hope of final redemption and final salvation. Um, you know, endurance means you keep plugging away because you know there's a finish line. If you've ever run long-distance races, right, there comes a point in the race where you just want to quit. I remember one of my first very long races was over this mountain pass, 23 miles, and uh, being 17 years old and not having a clue about a lot of things, I, I thought, oh, I don't need to drink water. <laughs> 23 miles, no sweat. I don't need to drink at all the little stations along the way. And I had no idea, number one, of how much water your body consumes as you're running 23 miles. Secondly, I didn't, had no clue at that altitude how quickly you can dehydrate. So about halfway through the race, I got seriously, seriously dehydrated. Right? So much so that at that point, drinking water didn't work because my body just rejected it. Dangerous place to be, right? Because I was just stupid. And, uh, but I'm, I'm dying, right? And... Uh, but I got to finish the race. <laughs> so I know that if I just keep putting one foot in front of the other, I can do this because the finish line will come, right? That's hope. As you deal with people and it gets tiring, Paul says, focus on the finish line, right? There will come a day, and if you're like me, time's going by faster and faster. The day you know, keeps speeding up. It's coming closer and closer, right? As time goes by faster and faster, that finish line is quickly approaching, right? Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't quit. Um, that's uh, verses uh, 1 through 4. Uh, Paul switches gears a little bit, and he goes from giving us our motivation and, and, and our, 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 go- our goal to serve. And in verses 5 and 6 and 7, he talks about the overarching purpose of it all. And he says this, and he actually says it in term of a prayer, but it's a prayer that's instructive. He says, may the God of endurance, now of course it's starting with scripture, now he's talking about God. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement 
grant or give to you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul says uh, you need to be very clear about the overarching goal of all this. Okay, Why are we supposed to be one in Christ? Why is it we're supposed to be putting up with the weaker brothers? Why is it in the church we're supposed to be striving towards this unity? Well, Paul says it's very important that we do it to the right purpose, the right goal. He says there is one overarching goal that controls everything in all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. There is one focus of it all. And what is that one focus? To glorify God, right? To glorify God. He says this is not just about having a church where it's a happy place, right? That's good. (laughs) I hope church is a happy place. It's not just about having uh, better relationships where you get along with people because it's easier, which is true. He says the real focus and point of it all is this. It is God's glory that is at stake here. We're to be this way. We're to strive to, to this end so that with one heart and one mouth, we together would glorify God. Okay, Incredible truth. Um, literally in verse 5 he says this, May the God of patience and encouragement give to you to mind the same thing among one another. To mind, to think about the same thing among one another. Now in this context, uh, thinking alike can't possibly mean that we agree on everything. Because that's what he's talking about here, how uh, we don't agree. How we have these doctrinal differences. So he's not talking here that You know, the goal of unity in the church is that all of us would finally come to the point where you accept my doctrinal statement and my theology, which would be the solution to harmony, right? It's not going to happen, right? Or anybody's doctrine doesn't work that way. And that's not what Paul's saying. Uh, But he is saying that we need to be uh, like-minded. We need to have the same thought. But he says it this way. He says we should have the same mind among one another according to... Christ Jesus, right? He says, you know, there's a lot of things we're going to differ about. But in the essential core things, in, in Christ Jesus, we should be one in our thought. And specifically, we should be one in terms of our overarching purpose, right? We may not agree about everything, but we must agree on this one thing, <clears throat> on the point of it all, the goal of it all, is the glory and praise of God. Um, companies have figured this out. Companies have realized that if they want their, their workers to do well, <clears throat> they need to have a clear, unifying vision. And so it's the big thing now with companies. They all have vision statements. And if you go online, you can Google. <clears throat> and you can find, for example, Fortune 500, all those businesses list their, their mission statements. So I picked a few. Uh, this company I've never heard of, but Becton Dickinson and Company. It's a medical company. They make pharmaceuticals and doctor stuff, right? Uh, their slogan, so their doctor stuff, their slogan, helping all people live healthy lives. Their mission statement, to help all people live healthy lives, right? Simple. Help people be healthy. 
Well, they like that because it focuses them on one mission that's common that brings them all together. Somebody says, you know, I want to build a better car. This is what you know. There probably is a need for a better car, but if that better car doesn't contribute to making people healthier, it's not what we do. Go somewhere else, right? Keeps them focused. Another one, I like this one, Mattel. Mattel makes toys, right? Barbie dolls, Matchbox cars, Fisher-Price, Mattel. Interesting, their mission statement. Listen to this. Uh, What would you think their mission statement would be? That every child would just have fun, right? Well, no. Uh, Mattel makes, this is their mission, Mattel makes a difference in the global community by effectively serving children in need. Partnering with charitable organizations dedicated to directly serving children, Mattel creates joy through the Mattel Children's Foundation, product donations, grant making, and the work of employee volunteers. Pretty interesting. So they're not really about making toys. They're about serving needy children. I don't know if, I, don't know if I would really buy that, but <laughs> sounds good. Um, and I like this, that... Um, you know, you're not just making a Barbie doll. You're making a difference in the world. <laughs> Barbie's making a difference. Barbie's on a mission. Uh, but it certainly would elevate, you know, if I'm working for Mattel, I'm going to feel better about what I do because I'm helping, ne- I'm making a difference in the world. Okay? Another one, I like this one. Harley Davidson. Harley Davidson has a mission statement. Who knew? Right? Okay, uh, their mission statement, we fulfill dreams. <laughs> right? Through the experience of motorcycling. I think they're a little more honest than Mattel, actually. <laughs> we fulfill dreams, right? Um, do we know what the driving, overarching, singular mission of the church is? Singular mission of the Bible singular overarching mission of everything that every believer ought to be about. Paul says it is simply this, that with one heart, the word kind of doesn't, it doesn't really get even translated in this, which is too bad, but it really means the idea of with one passion and with one voice, the church would come together with such unity that with one heart, one passion, one voice, we together would glorify God. That's what it's to be about. And, and Paul says, you know, when you have that perspective that it's about God's glory, right, and you are focused on that thing alone, that is the overarching vision that drives it all, then unity now has a, a much higher calling and, and meaning. It's not just getting along. It's not just harmony and peace and, you know, world peace and warm fuzzies. No, it is the glory of God that's at stake here. Because God will be ultimately glorified on a much grander scale when when... All of his children do it with one heart and one voice, right? There really is something amazing. When we gather together here on Sunday morning with just with this group, we come from different countries, different languages, many different backgrounds and, and, and cultures and, and uh, denominations and religious traditions. But when we all come together with one purpose, simply to praise and worship God, there's something incredibly powerful in that. Right? And we sense that, we feel that as we sing, as we come, as we worship God together, that we do it laying aside all of our differences, right? Laying aside the things that could divide us uh, and, and 
putting those things aside because we want to give worship and praise to God who is worth it, who is worthy of that kind of um, worship. It really is the mission of God. And Paul uh, lists four different passages from the Old Testament. We don't have time to go into it, but let me just read them. And note two things about these passages, each of them. Number one, it talks about both the, the Jews and the Gentiles, the nations, right? And it talks about praise and worship. Let me just read through them real quickly. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, uh, his faithfulness really, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify his mercy. As it is written, okay, four, four quotes. First one, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples together extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse, the Messiah, will come, even he who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Right? Paul says, Paul's saying here that the overarching theme of the Old Testament, and he gives a quote from each of the four, uh, the, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and the wisdom, uh, he gives a quote from each section of the Old Testament to show all along that's what God's heart has been, to bring all the world together, to bring many tribes and tongues and languages together for one purpose, that together they would rejoice and glory in God. Right? Jesus died, he said, to confirm the promises, to fulfill the promises made to the circumcised. Why? So they would worship him. And so that the Gentiles would worship because of God's mercy. So he brought us together, fulfilling the promise to the Jews, extending mercy to the Gentiles so that together we would worship him. We would praise him. That has got to be the overarching driving mission of, of our life. Right? Uh, there are lots of good mission statements, and you need to look at your personal one, your organizational one, if, if it doesn't begin with to bring glory to God by, you need to rewrite it, right? You need to rewrite it. Uh, you know, a lot of times, and these are, these are not bad things. I'm not condemning these things, but they're misdirected if they're not worshiping God first. A lot of organizations say, you know, our mission is to plant churches. Well, I'll tell you what. If you're not planting churches to give glory to God, you're going to end up with churches who just fight with each other, Right? you're going to end up with churches that are at odds with all the other churches because they don't do it the way you do it, right? My, my, my mission is to make disciples. Well, if you're not making disciples who worship and glorify God, right, you're going to have defective disciples. Uh, your mission is to bring social order and justice through helping anti-trafficking and da-da. Great. If you're not doing it so that those people bring glory to God as they experience His mercy... You're missing something, right? Because that's the purpose of it all. Whatever it is you do, if it is not ultimately to bring people together so that with one heart and one voice, they glorify God, right? We're missing something. And in the end, it will always be self-pleasing, self-serving, right? Uh, only one thing will elevate us above that, 
And that's when we are living for God's glory above everything. Finally, Paul finishes with these words, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Right? Paul says, God wants you to enjoy him, right? to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God wants you to be filled with a certain joy and peace that comes by believing. But Paul strategically connects it with this call to unity in the body of Christ. Right? That we have to be bringing uh, as stronger as the stronger ones, working diligently to bring people together, to grow them up in the core essential doctrines of the faith so that we would be a church who worships him together. It's building oneness, not that we agree about everything, but we agree about our purpose to glorify God. And we take it seriously. Right? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.